Hello, friends. This is Caleb Suko, and you are listening to the Now is the Time podcast. And on this episode, I want to share with you my next sermon in the series on the five solas of the Reformation. We just got back from our trip to Chile to visit our daughter and son-in-law this past week. Got back about 3.30 in the morning on Wednesday morning. So we had to take a day or two to just kind of try and get over that jet lag. But we were glad to be able to visit Tabernacle Baptist Church in Shoreline, just north of Seattle, yesterday. And we had a great time there with the the people. We were able to share in Sunday school about the ministry in Ukraine. And and I preached. And so that's a sermon that I'm going to be sharing in just a minute here on this podcast episode. But before we get into that, I did want to make mention of the fact that we are going to be doing a special project this Christmas in Ukraine. Uh, I won't be there for it, but uh, my good friend uh, who is... Uh, in our sister church in Odessa, uh, Oleg Shakevich is going to be leading this project. And it is really focused on bringing the gospel to Ukrainian soldiers. And so I want to invite you to pray for this project and if you can to support this project. Basically, the team is going to be visiting uh, several groups of soldiers, some of them along the front lines, and going to be distributing to them some audio players that have uh, audio Bible on them as well as they have some good expository Bible preaching on them. And I always think that it's really good, of course, we want to get them the Bible, but also to get them some good Bible preaching. And so our our goal is to be able to give out several thousand of these audio players. And of course, as they visit the soldiers, they won't just be giving out the players, but they will be they will have an opportunity to do some music and preach the gospel and spend some time with those soldiers as well. So that's going to happen the beginning of January because that's Christmas over there in Ukraine. It's the beginning of January. So if you want to help out with that, just go ahead over to sukofamily.org. I will put a link in the show notes to this episode. And I and if you want to go straight there, you can just go to sukofamily.org slash soldiers Christmas. Alright, friends, that's it for the update. So let's get on to the sermon. This is number four in my series on the five solas, and this is about Solus Christus. And today I want to talk with you about Solus Christus by Christ alone. It is the, really usually the fourth in the five solas of the Reformation. And if, if you're not familiar with the solas of the Reformation, they are sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli dio gloria. That is by scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, and for God's glory alone. And really, those five aspects of the, really of the gospel are, are core and vital to who we are as Protestant evangelical believers. 
And they aren't just truths that were invented 500 years ago when the reformers like Calvin and, and Luther and others uh, began to, to start the Reformation, but really they are truths that are found in Scripture and that are based in Scripture and they are, were rediscovered by the reformers around 500 years ago. And they're important truths because really if you miss any one of these five solas, or if you twist it or misunderstand it, you, you get a false gospel. Somehow, some way or another, whether it's works or something else creeps in and you get a false gospel if you miss any of these five solas. But I think that this, this sola is particularly important for American churches today, especially by Christ alone. Because we live in a culture that is very pluralistic, don't we? And to say something like this, there's salvation only by Christ, only through Christ alone. Well, that's, that's exclusive, isn't it? That's not very tolerant of other religions. And so I, I think that it is, is very important that we take a close look at this theology today. And you might think, well, okay, well, I understand, you know, salvation is by Christ alone. That's a, 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 a elementary doctrine that I've been taught. And, but, you know, I want to encourage you, don't just dismiss this as something simple and something that you already know, because as it is with, I think, all of the basic and core aspects of God's Word and of the Gospel, these are things that we must understand as we come to salvation in Christ, but we must grow in and we must deepen as we grow in our relationship with Christ. And we don't have the luxury of being apathetic when it comes to by Christ alone. Because as soon as we do, we will be, it will begin to slip through our hands. And, and furthermore, I think that... that it's quite clear from Scripture that these are the areas that the Satan likes to attack. So if he's going to attack something, he will attack those core beliefs of the gospel. So we need to make sure that we know them and that we can defend them. Even though, like I said, we live in a culture today that is, is very pluralistic and very, what we say, tolerant, right? And to say that salvation is by Christ alone, many people say, well, that's not tolerant of other belief systems, of other religions. And so major uh, people often, what I come across is people with an approach that say, well, you know, major religions like Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and Judaism, they're maybe on the surface a little bit different, but at the core, they're, they're sort of all the same. Have you ever heard something like that? Well, they're all just kind of, you know, sort of slightly different paths that are all leading to God. It's untrue. I, I like Ravi Zacharias, his response to this. He says, My premise is that the popular aphorism that all religions are fundamentally the same and only superficially different simply is not true. It is more correct to say that all religions are at best superficially similar but fundamentally different. You catch that? Superficially some religions look similar, but fundamentally, at the core, there is a big difference. You know where I get this more often than not in the United States, especially, is from Mormons. I don't know if you've talked to Mormons recently, but I know that, uh, in fact, one of the 
first couple of days when we came back to the States, Mormons caught us walking downtown and they said, hey, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're using words like grace and Jesus Christ and the atonement and they do everything to make it sound like they're the same. But it is a superficial sameness. It is a superficial agreement. And so I, I told them, I said, I, I'm, I just you know, like to be straightforward with them, right? You know, I'm, I said, well, listen, you know, I'm a Baptist. You understand we're different, right? I said, oh, yeah, well, you know. And, and then they, they tried to, to go on. And so at the end, he's the, this young man who's called an elder, he says, well, can I just pray for you? And I've never been in that position. I think, okay, what do I do now? This guy wants to pray for me. And I start thinking, well, who's he praying to? And so I said, well, well, here's the thing. I said, you pray to a different God than I pray to. And he was shocked. He was really shocked when I said that. I think that he, maybe he even didn't realize that. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you believe, uh, Mormons believe in a lineage of gods, one God after another God after another God. So you believe in a lot of gods. You believe in a lineage of God. I believe in one God who has always existed. That's a different God. And so anyway, our discussion went on from there. But what I'm saying is that, that we have to realize that fundamentally we are different than Judaism, Hinduism, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others. Even though our society and our culture would like to say that we're sort of fundamentally the same but superficially different. So let's look at Scripture. The idea of solus Christus really begins in the Old Testament. Let's look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. I want to just quickly take you chronologically through a number of Scriptures that, that show that this is an idea that is from the beginning in the Bible. It is in the Old Testament. It is in the Gospels. It is in the Epistles. And it is throughout Scripture the, the fundamental and, and key teaching about who God is. He is exclusive. So Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Don't pass over this verse too quickly. This is fundamental theology about the existence of God. Let's talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses for a minute, Okay. They, like, they love to say, hey, well, you know, Jehovah is the correct name for God. And they're right about that. Where do they get that from? They get it from this verse right here. God said, I am who I am. You might have some different translation there. This is uh, a translation of what God says. But the word Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you pronounce it, same word, it means he is. Literally, He is. Yegova. He is. That's what God is saying here. I am. Very, very profound statement for God to make. Very deep theological ramifications underneath that statement. And I think that Moses understood it. And this was important for Moses to understand because Moses, asked, you know, this is, if you know the story, this is at the burning bush. Moses has run away pretty much from God. He's spent 40 years in the wilderness, wandering around, not knowing what to do. And then all of a sudden he sees his burning bush. God calls him to go to his people and save them. And he says, well, he's got a number of excuses, right? And his, his first says, well, you know, what am I going to say to them? If they ask me, who sends me? That's a good question. That is a good question. 
Because we need to know who is this God who is doing the saving. Because not everyone is up to the task, right? And so Moses asked, I think it's a fair question here, although maybe he should have already known the answer to it. Who is this God that is sending me? And God answers with the most profound theological statement about the existence of God, probably in the entire Bible. I am. As simple as that. I am. And in this simple statement, God, in no unclear terms, he tells Moses that he is unique, that he is exclusive. So the statement, solus Christus, means only by Christ. And here we, we see that God is putting himself in a category that is existentially different than any other category that exists or that can exist logically. He say, here I am. I alone exist independent of anyone else, uncreated, with no beginning. So the, the understanding of I am is that, that I didn't begin. I haven't been and then I am no more. It's not that I am now, but I won't be in the future. No, I am. That, that is the most fundamental truth there is. God exists. He has always existed, and He will always exist. And what that means is that if He is eternally existent, then no one created Him, and everything else must come from Him. Because He is the only thing that is eternally existent, right? This is extremely important truth. It will be important for Moses to understand. Because this is the God, this is the power in which he is to go to the Israelites. It would be important for the Israelites to understand. Because they lived how many years in, this, in Egypt? 400. I mean, the United States is only what? Like 240 years old, right? We're talking like almost twice the amount of time that the United States has been a country. They lived in Egypt, and that was a place of many, many gods. And so one of God's main purposes in pulling the Israelites out of Egypt was to say, listen, you need to understand that there is, is only one God. There is an exclusive God, and I am He. And so later we see that Moses, or God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And let's look actually for a minute at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 and 3. The Ten Commandments, God prefaces it like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Is that not exclusive? It is. Who brought them out? Not God with the help of some other gods. Not God with the help of Moses. Not God with the help of any other people. He says, listen, you need to know who I am. I am the God. And remember how he brought them out? He brought them out with the ten plagues, right? And the plagues were specifically directed against the gods of Egypt. And by the way, the, the plagues were more for Israel than they were for the Egyptians. They were more so that the Israelites would see that, wait a minute, God is bigger than that God, God is greater than that God, and God is greater than that God, and God is even greater than Pharaoh, the last plague, the plague of death of the firstborn. And so the exclusivity of God is throughout the Old Testament. One more Verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Probably the most recited verse in the Bible. 
Because at the, in Israel, in Jerusalem, at the wall, this is what they recite. This is what they put in their little phylacteries and their little boxes on their hands and on their heads. They put this scripture. Because they realize, and they correctly realize how important it is to their theology. There is only one God, and you'll see it. You'll see it repeated and repeated and repeated in the Old Testament. But let's look at what Christ says. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the words of Christ himself. John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Hey, have we heard that somewhere before? Where do we hear that? Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Did the Pharisees understand what Jesus was saying? Yes, they understood. By the way, this is an amazing text to show to your Jehovah's Witness and Mormon friends. Because what Jesus says here in the end of verse 58 is word for word, a quotation from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Exodus 3, 14. And the Jews revered this so much. Remember the third commandment? Do not take the Lord your God's name in vain, right? And they reviewed, re- revered God's name so much that they would never say Jehovah or Yahweh. Instead, whenever they came to this name, they said Adonai. That's why often in your translations, depending on what English translation you have, instead of saying Jehovah or Yahweh, it will say Lord, all capital letters. Because that's what Adonai means. They replaced the name Jehovah with Adonai because they were afraid to say it. And so they understood what that meant. That means I am the God of the Old Testament who brought Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt. I am the creator God. I am the God of Deuteronomy 6, 4 that says, I'm one. That's what Jesus was saying when he said this to the Pharisees. And so, of course, they took that as blasphemy. They wanted to stone him. He, Jesus, is the self-existent one. In fact, go back to John chapter 1, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. There was nothing that was created that was not created by him. Take that one to your Jehovah's Witness and Mormon's friends as well. There's nothing created that wasn't created by Jesus. And we see the exclusivity of Jesus. He is in a different category. He is in the uncreated category. Nothing else is in the uncreated category. Jesus is self-existent. He has no creator, no beginning, no end. He is the source of all that exists, and thus he has the rights over all creation and the power over all creation. And because he has those things, he alone has the ability to save and forgive sins. And that's why we can say, solus Christus. Our salvation is by Christ alone. And to say anything else would would lessen who Jesus is and would unjustly elevate something or someone else. Because as soon as we begin to say, well, you need Jesus and this for salvation, we're saying, well, Jesus isn't quite enough but this thing over here is really, really much more important than it should be, right? And more powerful. In fact, if you go back to the story of 
God taking the Israelites out of Egypt, why did God choose Moses? He was a guy that couldn't talk. He was a murderer. He was disobedient. I mean, he had all kinds of problems, right? Because God didn't need anyone else. He didn't need someone that was skillful because God was going to do it all. And he was just going to use Moses and work through him. So even there we see that, that God saves on his own. So the, we see that the, uh, the Pharisees reacted very violently to, to this statement of Jesus, this statement of exclusivity. But later on in John, we see another statement of Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 6, you probably know this one. It says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's talking to Thomas, and he's talking to the disciples here. Now, this is a little bit of a different statement. It's also an exclusive statement that tells us that it is only Jesus. But this statement is, rather than what we saw in John chapter 8, which is sort of condemnation on the Pharisees, and they understood that condemnation, this is comfort. Jesus is comforting his disciples with this truth. Remember, in John chapter 13, Jesus began to tell the disciples, listen, I'm going to leave you. I've been with you all this time, and I'm going to leave you. They began to get concerned. And he told them in the beginning of John chapter 14, he said, listen, don't, you know, don't, don't be concerned. Be comforted and believe in God and believe also in me. And he talks about how he's going to be preparing a place for them so that they will be with him in eternity. And then one of the disciples said, well, wait a minute, but, but we don't know how to get there. He said, you do. And this is Jesus' answer. He reassures them, if you know me, then you know how to get there. And this is the comfort that they were looking for. And so we see that this doctrine of solus Christus is very comforting to us as believers. Jesus says in verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. When we understand this doctrine, our hearts are not troubled. Why? Because we are reassured that if we know Jesus, then we know the way to eternal life. We are reassured that Jesus doesn't really need any help in saving us. Sometimes it's tempting to think, well, I know, yeah, I know Jesus can save me, but maybe if I just do this and that and the other thing, then I'll be really sure that I'm saved, right? Well, maybe, maybe you'll, be, <laughs> you'll, you'll feel sure, but there's nothing surer than Jesus. And so it reassures us that Jesus does not need any help. It reassures us that we do not need to look any further. So while the exclusivity of Christ condemns those who don't believe, it comforts those who do believe. And aren't you glad that Christ and Christ alone saves? That you don't have to look any farther? That you don't have to try any harder? That you don't have to wonder or doubt or, or think that maybe yes, maybe no? No, Christ saves and he saves completely. And he saves without your help. And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. But as I said, we live in this pluralistic culture today where people like to say, well, you know, that's your truth. And that truth is for you, but this truth is for me, so don't judge me because everyone's... The important thing is, is not what you believe, it's just that you believe it sincerely. That's often what our culture says today, isn't it? I once had a neighbor who was very in, uh, interested to get to know me. 
and we invited him over for dinner, and we were having a wonderful dinner, and he said, I really want to know more about your faith. And I began to explain to him, and he said, well, yeah, I'm really more of a Buddhist. And I began to explain to him a little more about Christianity. He said, well, you know, I kind of think that, that God is like on the top of a mountain, and, and we're all just kind of going up different sides, and, and every religion will eventually get to God. I said, well, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's not true. The way that the Bible pre- explains it is that, yeah, maybe God's on the mountain, but there's only one way up and down. Some people are going up and some people are going down. And that's what we see in Scripture here. So Jesus definitely claimed exclusivity for himself, but also let's briefly look at uh, what was uh, preached in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And do you realize the disciples, 11 out of 12 of them, they were put to death because they believed this? These aren't just little doctrines that we can sort of happily disagree about. And I wonder, I read this and thinking, wait a minute, how how tightly am I holding on to this doctrine? How carefully am I understanding it? That if I were asked or, or confronted with this situation, that I would be willing to go to death to say that there is no other salvation except in Jesus Christ. And so we see that it was preached and it was written about in the, in the epistles as well. Um, you could look, I won't go there now, but 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Um, Paul writes about the exclusivity of Jesus. And, and here's where, where we run into a problem. Primarily, of course, we see this problem in the Catholic Church. We also see it in the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. Where it's sort of like, they, they don't completely deny that Jesus saves. They say He saves. But you need to, number one, keep the sacraments. And number two, you need to ask for help from Mary and from the different saints. And you know, we just have to, we have to look at that and say, wait a minute, but that does not come from Scripture. That does not come from Scripture. We don't see that it says that Jesus saves with the help of Mary. Or that Jesus saves with the help of icons. Or that Jesus saves with the help of a priest. Yes, we can minister to each other. But we do not save each other. Only God saves. In fact, in, in Catholic and Orthodox theology... The definition of the church is really two things. It is ordained clergy, and it is the building, the the bricks, the mortar, the wood. And so in in order to gain salvation, their doctrine states that salvation comes through the church. So you must be physically present in a temple. You must come to a priest, a human priest, And it is through that partly that you receive the grace of God which comes through the clergy and comes through the holy temple where you are. 
Again, we don't see that in Scripture. So we must go back and we must proclaim boldly the exclusivity of Christ in our salvation. And when we talk about solus Christus, of course, primarily we are talking about salvation and the gospel. We are saved by Christ alone. But there's also other areas of life that I think that we need to understand the exclusivity of Christ. We need to understand that, that Christ alone is the creator. That we understand that Christ alone is, has the right and authority to take life or give life. That Christ alone should be worshipped. That Christ alone can give, only can give us true joy. That Christ alone sits on the throne. That Christ alone knows the future. That Christ alone loves us unconditionally and will never leave us. There are many other aspects to the Christ alone. And we as believers need to continue to study and hold on to that basic truth of Scripture. By Christ alone are we saved. Let's pray.